Hello, Gary. How are you? I'm doing well. I'm, um, this is a conversation where I usually make excuses for why the column isn't in yet, but uh, I'm actually doing something else. So, Gary, why isn't the column in just yet? I, I, you know, I noticed that yours wasn't on time. Oh, <laughs> uh, thank you for pointing that out. I, I never noticed that myself. Um, I always, there's always this sense at the at, at the end when they, I mean, it, it, it's done. I have to spend a, a day polishing it and, and making it, you know, taking out absolute inanities. Yeah. But there's always this sense that I can squeeze one more book in if I just get another week. I understand. Well, I had a similar. Uh, contact from one of the other reviewers saying, you know, maybe they could just get a, a little bit longer, another day. I mean, sure. And I mean, I, I, I look back and I figure Charles must have lived through this age, you know, a million times. Certainly I became, the longer I reviewed, the worse I became. That, that's my own recollection. Um, oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, when I started, I was absolutely terrorized. Well, when I was younger in general and in the field, I was absolutely terrorized by deadlines. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but there's a certain point at which you know, a lot of people can say, if, if it's not in by the deadline, you're you're gone. Yeah. And uh, at some point, you realize that most mag- well, I mean, every professional fiction writer I know uh, knows how malleable the deadlines are, and and agents know even more how malleable sure. writers think deadlines are. <laughs> it's like that that Douglas Adams quote, wasn't it? You know, sort of, there's nothing more that he, he liked better than the sound of deadlines pushing by. Exactly right. Although you know anybody who's at the bottom end of the commercial spectrum will, will sort of tell you that that's very much the privilege of those at the top, because you know the, the, the more disposable you are, the more firm the deadlines tend to be. I but, think that's true in, in, in a marketing sense, and it may also be true in a literary sense. Mm-hmm. Um, nobody. We were talking about Ted Chang. Nobody gives Ted Chang a deadline. Uh, or, or, or if they do, it's you know. It isn't going to come so much. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> even, even, I mean, I, I, what I was going to say about deadlines for a second, though, was what, what I recall is when I first started reviewing for Locus, it wasn't only that it was important to make the deadline. It felt easier. And I think it's just simply a matter of learning more about the field so that you end up sort of having to or wanting to put more into, into what you're writing. Think about it more. You know, it becomes a more complicated thing you're doing rather than just basically doing a simple book report, which I guess is what I was doing at the very beginning. So I could read four books in a week and knock out a review column in an hour and a half. Well, and this is I, – I think the, the longer you do it, the more you want to, to spend time on writing it. And that's the real reason the column is late is I want to rethink the review, which is problematical. And, mm-hmm. uh, and, and, and there's some things when – you're, when you're writing a mixed review, you have to be careful about your choice of words. Yep. Uh, more so than if you're writing an absolute, if, if a novel bowls you over, then you're trying to think of, of, of praise. Although one of the well, one of the problems in, in, in the whole vocabulary of criticism is that um, it's uh, we have an enor- enormous vocabulary for for trashing something, yep. and uh, and a very limited vocabulary for pointing out its benefits or its virtues. Yeah, uh, and, uh, and 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 you don't want every review to look like these kind of uh, movie blurbs that appear from people you've never heard of. Yeah, uh, on, on, on movie ads because uh, that that suggests that you're not saying anything about it. And yeah, um, I, I think what what we tend to do are in, in Locus and what the reviews that I find interesting. I find a lot of other interesting. I mean, I, mean, I find you know certainly uh, uh, a lot of the online reviews are, are very good. I like Strange Horizons reviews. I like Neil Harrison's. I like Cheryl Morgan. There are sure. lots of people. They're all people who think uh, that there's more to a review than than thumbs up or thumbs down. Yeah, 
the, the worst reviewed system I've ever seen was one that was lasted for maybe a year and a half in Venture Science Fiction magazine back yeah. in the 50s was a companion to the magazine of Family of Science Fiction. Mm -hmm. It was actually done by Theodore Sturgeon, and it was a chart. Uh, <laughs> it was a little chart. And the last column in the chart was by yes or no. <laughs> That's funny. I was going to say, I think you're going to tell me one of those dreadful star systems. You know, this one gets three and a half stars. This one gets two or something. And those things right, are terrible I, as well. I, I never understood that. I never no. understood how you, how, how, you, how you discriminate between a half a star. No, no. Well, particularly since then, someone will come back to you and say, yeah, it's really funny, but you gave this book here three and a half stars. You're giving this one today three and a half stars. Are you saying that they're each as good as one another? And you look at me going, well, no. I like that one a lot more. And it's like, eh. So yes, it, it, it's it's not not a useful useful thing. The actual issue that came up in this one book that I'm having problems with is this anthology, and mm -hmm. um, and it it led to an observation that uh, I was I was actually troubled enough by this that I called Elizabeth Hand this afternoon and we talked about it a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, and the question was something that you don't want to say in a review that's in essentially what's an advocacy journal and science fiction is advocated by by locus and by sure. most of us. Yeah. Um, and, and and you don't want to sound terribly defensive and terribly uh, you know uh, defending the perimeter in, in in the way you say these things uh, because I have very little tolerance. Well, and most of us in the field have very little tolerance for people who say they can't read science fiction sure. and haven't tried. Um, yeah. I have very little tolerance for people who say they can't read anything but science fiction. Sure. So the question that came up, which I was talking to Liz about. Uh, was we finally have to admit at some point that science fiction and fantasy and horror writers, when they decide to do the mainstream moves, when they want to focus on character and prose, can do that pretty well. Mm -hmm. And most mainstream writers, and by mainstream writers I include both, quote, literary writers and, quote, bestseller writers, when they try to do the fantastic, usually do it badly. And I don't want to make that an absolute uh, uh, yeah, a, a statement. But by and large, in, in, in this anthology I'm thinking of, and other anthologies I've seen that are similar to this, yeah, yeah. that seems to be a pattern. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you, well, mm -hmm. so, so, so I had a, I had a problem that I was trying to solve, and, and when you're talking to somebody really intelligent like Liz, she immediately answered it and went away. Uh, which is simply this: that uh, most of the writers we know, we mentioned this a week or two ago, most science fiction writers, most fantasy writers, most horror writers read. Everything. They read nonfiction. They read a lot sure. of mainstream fiction. They know what's going on in the mainstream. They know what John Updike is doing uh, or was doing. Uh, and very few writers of the mainstream read anything in our field at all. So they don't know what's going on. Mm -hmm. And so you have a case, as in this book I'm reviewing, of a perfectly nice, competent writer um, writing a Clifford Simak story, and you know he's never heard of Clifford Simak. Of course. Of course. I mean, um, I I wonder if part of it is as well. I mean, sort of, you, 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 you look at this divergence, and to some degree, I think, it's easier for science fiction and fantasy writers to write mainstream because in some ways what they're doing is, when they write, they're adding something to a default mainstream position, whereas a mainstream writer is not. They're just simply doing that one thing. And, and, and yes, I, I do think genre writers read more widely, though I think the, the one thing that does change as they become more active in the field as they read less and less of the genre. Um, they read less and less of what fans, some fans, think of as a competition. Yeah. And uh, this doesn't surprise me at all. Mm -hmm. if, you, if you look at the fiction of 
of, of the writers that I really like, and, and Elizabeth Hand is certainly one of them, sure. uh, you find influences from – I learn how to read other mainstream things from reading them as well as – I don't read – uh, people like that to find out what other science fiction fantasy I should be reading. They've got friends, they've got colleagues in the field, yeah. they've got people who do, they trade stories back and forth. But they're not assiduously trying to keep up, quote, keep up with the field. No. Uh, they're, they're, what makes them interesting writers is that you have no idea what the sources are. They could be from anywhere. Yes. Um, one of the things that uh, Daniel Keyes, when he taught at uh, Ohio University, and for years he was teaching uh, fiction writing courses mm-hmm. until he retired mm-hmm. a decade or so ago, and, of course, everyone uh, who, uh, who took his course wanted to write science fiction because, hey, we're studying with the guy who wrote Flowers for Algernon. Of course. Gonna, yeah. and, and, and his uh, uh, strategy, as he told me once, was uh, he never lets them uh, write a science fiction or a fantasy story in the first semester. And his argument is, or was, uh, still is, I guess, that uh, you, can't write a, you can't write a good genre story until you can write a good story. Yeah. So show me you can write a good story, and then you can start trying to do the things that science fiction and fantasy and horror do. But the point that he was making specifically about science fiction mm-hmm. was that it's hard. Yes. Uh, it really is hard to write a good science fiction story because you have to do everything a good short story writer or a good novelist does yeah. to begin with, and then you have to do a lot of very difficult things on top of that. Mm-hmm. I think that's undeniably true. Um it, it's funny how the, the same basic rules apply, and yet the actual, you know, to, to writing a good mainstream short story and a good genre short story, but you add on an additional batch of rules which, you know, purely in a mainstream context, don't even necessarily make sense unless you're aware of the field and what you're talking about. Um, which gets us to the problem of somebody like a John Updike or a Paul oh, sure. Writing uh, really bad science fiction novels because they're completely unaware of what's going on out there. Yeah, I mean, I think you could see it in in the stories that were in that Mc, those McSweeney's books a couple of years back. Mm-hmm. They they had that all through. Yeah. Yeah, and you can also pick out those writers who do seem to know the field, who are mainstream writers. Uh, you know, from reading even Joyce Carol Oates's mainstream novels, that yeah. she knows her way around horror fiction. Oh yeah. Uh, you know that Michael Chabon knows his way around sure. science fiction. Yes. Uh, Jonathan Lethem knows what he's yes. doing. Uh, but other people seem to think that it's uh, the, 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 all their uh, other people, some other people. <laughs> yes, we have to be careful. Yes. The, all, yeah, exactly. All the normal uh, novel writing rules go out the window because <laughs> this isn't serious. We don't have to spend anything, uh, and, and we're going to write an allegory or we're going to uh, write a metaphor, and the metaphor just thuds, you know, yeah. like a yes. pile of wet blankets. And there's nothing worse than you know didactic or polemic fiction or fiction with you know great you know clumsy metaphors pasted on top of it. And you end up feeling like you're reading some kind of horrible sort of second-rate homework rather than a smart, desirable novel. You know, I often wonder. Yeah. You know, I mean, you, you see it in, in things like what, you know, Margaret Atwood's books. Some of her stuff is terrific. But say, where she touches on science fiction, I think you see you see the weakness come out, and you see you know, if you compare her to and, and, and we're always going to compare to the height of the field, of course. But uh, if you compare to Le Guin, say, yeah, Le Guin plainly, I mean, she can write mainstream brilliantly if she chooses to, but does not. Uh, but writes uh, genre fiction in a way that a Margaret Atwood couldn't, and I, I, I suspect only couldn't because she wouldn't be willing to work out how she should go about doing it. You know, I, I would, I'd never say she'd be completely unable, but there are enough intellectual barriers in the way that she's unlikely to ever do so. 
Well, she's also a skilled enough novelist, and uh, I, I admire both. I admire both of those science fiction novels, all all three of them, if you count *The Handmaid's Tale*, yeah. um, as as novels. And I, I kept thinking, this is this could be a great novel if she would, as you say, work things out. Um, there's a sense, uh, that there's a discipline involved with science fiction writing, which is invisible to people who don't know science fiction, because the assumption seems to be on, on, on Atwood's part. Now, and Atwood, I think, by the way, knows science fiction more than she lets on. Okay. Uh, I'm, I'm fairly certain that she's read a fair amount of it. She just doesn't basically want to be uh, tarred with it. She doesn't want yeah. to get what, what, what Graham Slide calls genre cooties. Um, <laughs> so, so there's there's something uh, to that. But uh, there are people who have tried to write. Doris Lessing read a lot of science fiction. I talked to her about this. She read. She was mm-hmm. a fan of Greg Bears, for heaven's sake. Uh, she read Stapleton. She read Clark. Uh, and when she tried science fiction, she didn't really do it very well. But she did it honestly. Yeah, uh, and she was trying to work out the things as as she saw them, uh, and, uh, and 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 actually she had a, a very good understanding of, of, of where she fell short. Yeah, uh, and and I, I I mentioned this to Greg at one point, and uh, I think I think Doris has said this since in interviews that uh, you you've got uh, a regular guy science fiction writer like Greg who we all know and he's been in the field forever and he's been in a fan and, and mm-hmm. you know, father-in-law is Paul Anderson and so forth. And Doris Lessing is a fan of his? Yeah. I mean, that's, that, that, that's <laughs> astonishing. It's, it's like uh, a few years ago, uh, yeah. somebody, who was it? Um, the, somebody uncovered a fan letter that uh, Virginia Woolf had written to Olaf Stapleton. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, it was in the Liverpool collection. It was, in the sta- it, it was completely unknown to Virginia Woolf scholars because it was in the Stapleton archive at Liverpool. And there are a lot of writers who can see what there have always been very good mainstream writers who could see what science fiction and fantasy can do yeah. um, and, and, and make an honest effort at it. So I'm not saying that they're all completely dismissed no, in no. the genre. But a lot of them are. <laughs> and, uh, and and, and there, you're right. There, there's, there are a lot of um, uh, writers in our genre who are uh, extremely capable of writing mainstream novels or novels that are close to being mainstream novels, or, or novels who, which, which might have been very high-profile mainstream novels if the writers hadn't been science fiction writers to begin with. And as much yeah. as I hate to say that, I think, I think your friend Jack Dan has suffered from that. And I think novels like The Memory Cathedral should have been uh, much more widely noticed than they were. Yeah. Uh, and and, and that's, not, uh, that's not a novel which is constrained by an excessive science fictional content. No. Uh, it's, uh, but, uh, you know, when... Uh, Stan Robinson moves into a, what are essentially mainstream fictions. I mean, the Washington Trilogy was very mainstream, and there were yeah. there were problems with it. But the mainstream elements of those uh, novels actually worked out very well, I thought. Yeah, yeah. The characters, the uh, the, the oddball stuff, the uh, the business about being a, a, a work at home father, uh, all that stuff struck me as being uh, very authentic. Yeah. Uh, it, it didn't do what uh, it didn't do what it might have done. Do you think that's because they just don't want to hear that from sci-fi guys? Um, I think there's still a problem, uh, as much as uh, you'd think would be past this, that a, a, that a novel of ideas, as our friend Charles always described science fiction as being, is mm-hmm. still is still isolated from what's considered literary fiction. Yeah, uh, yeah. It, it, and, and that's a divorce which is which is not. Eternal. I mean, it's not something. It's 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 a it's a controversy that went on between Henry James and H. G. Wells. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. there, there there were lots and lots of socially conscious novels uh, from Dickens and people like that. But but somehow that notion of writing, I think one of the things that did Stan in was the fact that he was writing uh, 
essentially uh, advocacy fiction. Uh, I'm using another grand slide. I'm borrowing all kinds of grand terms. Well, well, I mean, you have to say that, I mean, Stan, and I mean, I, I love his work. Stan um, has always done written stories, always written advocacy fiction pretty much. That, that's the, you know, it, it comes, to the, comes down to how much he tends to sugarcoat it, I think, well, and he, in, how much he wraps he, it in story. Mm-hmm. Well, what's interesting is that um, he's, the odd thing about uh, Stan is, that because I just got uh, in the mail today, as a matter of fact, your edited uh, <laughs> edition of the best of Kim Stanley Robinson, I was yep. actually looking at some of these stories, yep. and I realized that as, as apocalyptic as he can get, he's a very optimistic writer. He's a oh, optimist he writer. He absolutely is. He absolutely believes these things can be fixed, and, and, and that could be working against him because that works against the whole postmodern sensibility. It's, it's interesting to see. I'll be very curious to see how uh, Paolo Bacigalupi's Shipbreaker goes because Paolo is not an optimist. No, he's not. Uh, um, Paolo, it, Paolo describes futures. Um, he, he, he's not even a cautionary tale writer. No. He's not saying if we don't clean up our act, this is what's going to happen. Yeah. He's convincing us this is going to happen, and there's almost nothing we can do to stop it. Though Shipbreaker is a somewhat more optimistic version of that. I mean, it is softened somewhat for the YA market, or at least for the story he's well, telling, it's, from, from, say, the Wind-Up Girl. It's, from the Wind-Up Girl, it's, it's, it's yeah, there's, but, but, but the entire world of the Wind-Up Girl is implied in this. And, you know, in the subsequent novels, he's, this kid's going to learn more and more about it. I think the only thing that makes it actually more optimistic is that you have plucky kid, kids in it. Sure. Uh, I mean, it, it, there's a large chunk of Shipbreaker which is Huckleberry Finn. Yeah. Um, and, and and it works. And Huckleberry Finn is a very apocalyptic novel which is optimistic because you end up believing in Huck. And I think you end up believing in Powell's characters because that's yeah. about all he gives you to believe in. Yeah, yeah. I, mean, I still think the quintessential uh, Powell story is uh, The People of Sand and Flag. Yeah. Because that's more or less the end point. That is... That is Paolo's version of that last chapter of uh, Wells' The Time Machine when he ends up on the you know, the dead beach with a crab-like creature scuttling toward him. Yeah. Uh, there's, there's just there's no way around it. No, no. I, I was going to say, just because it's you know, of interest to me, I don't seem to be able to do anything that doesn't take a long time, Gary. And the reason I say that is you're holding now a galley of the best of Stan Robinson, right? Mm-hmm. Or at least it's sitting in your office. It's sitting right here in front of me. Do you know when that book began? I don't. November the 16th, 2006. 2006? 2006. And it started with a blog post that I wrote where I was... I intended to do a series of these blog posts, but being me, I never did, uh, where I would identify things called on books, books that I thought should exist, that Mm -hmm. uh, there was really no chance would ever exist. And so I worked out a Best of Kim Stanley Robinson, and I proposed a table of contents for that book. And there was discussion about it and everything else. And that blog post led directly to the book that's now coming out in August. Because that led to one publisher getting in touch with me and saying, hey, they would do it under certain circumstances, and then... uh, that not quite working out, then another publisher becoming, you know, Nightshade coming on board, uh, Stan sticking with it through a little bit of thick and thin to finally getting to sort of, you know, the, the book that's coming out with with the new story in it and all that kind of stuff. So, mm-hmm. first you notice it has an unpublished story in it. Yeah, I love it. It's mainstream. It's completely mainstream. Well, then, okay, this is this is this is exactly what um, what I was saying. Yep. Uh, Stan can do this sort of thing. He can, uh, and, and and can do it very well. 
I, I love that story. I mean, I, I absolutely am grappling with the fact that there's no, you know, no legitimate way on earth that I can put that book, sorry, that story in my year's best. Yet, if it had just so much as a bit of sort of far future tinfoil in the background, it would be in my mm-hmm. year's best because there's just nothing genre about it at all. Um, this is the same problem I had in reviewing John Crowley's Four Freedoms, and mm-hmm. I finally and 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 uh, there are any number of stories that uh, that are like that. Well, you must have gotten some feedback on some of the Eclipse anthologies. Oh yeah, awfully you... mainstream. Well, yes. I mean, the, the one that everyone always refers to, I think, first is the Karen Joy Fowler story, mm-hmm. uh, the Pelican Bar, and my response on that one is, first of all, the last couple of lines point towards it being a science fiction story. You know, when the character refers to, you know, you humans. I mean, that's not something that a human being would say. And if they're, if they're not human beings, then what are they? They're aliens, so it's science fiction. And also, it's in a science fiction fantasy book. Um, the other, yeah, the other argument. You know, so so con- context, will, you know, if context doesn't actually set the fact, it kind of reinforces it, nudges it that way. Uh, whereas, you know, a story like, like Stance, which is the tympanist of the Berlin Philharmonic Monic 1942, is is pretty much a straight historical story. You know, it, it's but you you can as he said, I think you can look for most of the footage on YouTube if you want to. Um, yeah, I, I, I look at this afterward about that. Yeah. But my question, though, not having read the story because it just arrived in the mail, yeah. is does it feel in any way like a science fiction story? Does it is it the kind of story that would uh, that would show up in a science fiction anthology, and, and science fiction readers would think that's a great story, and only later would they think, wait a minute, that that wasn't science fiction. I, th- I think what you would do, and because this is what I was doing when I was reading it, is you're looking for the alternate history penny to drop. Well, yeah, exactly. That's really what you are. I mean, you're sitting there going, well, here I am. I'm reading. You know, I've, I've read all these other stories in this book, particularly like in this case of, with Stan's book. You have all these various stories, and am I going to turn around and find that something's different? You know, sort of, Germany didn't win the war, whatever it is, right? Mm-hmm. There's nothing. <laughs> you know, there's well, that's fine. But, that's, 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 but you're talking about reading the story out of having been conditioned to read Stan Robinson's story. Yes, exactly. Uh, it, it's a there, there is a kind of story, I'm convinced of it, and I'm not sure I could identify it or describe it in any coherent way. There's a kind of story that possibly because of context, because of what we know about the writer, yeah. but possibly because of the sensibility of the story, has that aspect. I've had this discussion yeah. with and about Ellen Clages, who, as you know, half the stories in Portable Wind. Maybe not half, but a fair number of the stories in Portable Childhoods are mainstream stories. Sure, sure. Uh, some of Sturgeon's classic stories, a lot of people... You could argue that Bianca's Hands, for example, is a horror story, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But it's, you couldn't argue it's a science fiction or a fantasy story, yeah. really. Yeah. And, and, and people remember that as one of the most haunting Sturgeon stories. Exactly. Um, definitely. Um, I, I don't think you could argue that Tympanist of the Berlin Philharmonic is horror or is alternate history or anything else. Um, though there is that... It has all the Stan Robinson-ness. I mean, it's what, what, what back at the magazine you know, we, we would refer to as associational. You know, because I think anybody who's enjoyed Robinson's fiction will enjoy it. Um, mm. But not if you're looking for spaceships and stuff. No, no, not at all. And I, I, and I find one of the more sort of interesting notions is that that's what he's working on now. Um, he's working on a hard science fiction novel where there's kind of a space opera. Space opera, yeah. Uh, the the one, one that kind of you know, revisits... Um, Whatever the, you know, the third novel that he did was, that, whose title always keeps escaping me, the one after Ice Henge, 
The Memory of Whiteness. Oh, The Memory of Whiteness. Oh, excellent. Which, if you recall, is basically sort of a tour of the solar system kind of a book. Um, and I think he very much intends to do that, but with more plot and more space opera-ish kind of touches mm. to it. The only thing is, you know, you sit there going, yes, Stan Robinson. I, I, I don't know that he can do actual space opera. <laughs> I, th- I think it has to be, you know, Antarctica in the solar system or something. Well, there's a point at which uh, there, there are two things that, that happen with that, one of which is mildly disturbing, the other of which is not disturbing at all. The mildly disturbing part is that you always wonder if somebody uh, of, of, of a quality of a Stan Robinson or a John Crowley uh, or, or an Elizabeth Hand uh, somehow resort to writing what, what gained them their first fame because they're not getting where they wanted to in the mainstream, uh, which is mm. always a possibility. Uh, the, the 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 thing that makes it less disturbing to me is that uh, I don't think any of these people are going to write a bad novel. They're not going to oh, write no. a formula novel. I mean, at one point, one of the last pieces of wisdom that Charles Brown uh, imparted to a, to a writer, the last interview he did was with John Crowley in uh-huh. last year's ReaderCon, and, and 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 John was 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 distressed at the, uh, the the lack of attention which at that time had been paid to Four Freedoms. Yeah. And was talking about, well, I'll go back and I'll write another engine summer or something because that's what people want. And 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 Charles said, no, you won't. Uh, he said, you you might write something that looks like science fiction, but the next John Crowley novel is going to be a John Crowley novel because that's what you write now. Yeah. Um, yeah. The point is that you, you the, the conscientious, talented writers who have lots and lots of stories and we're going to write the next story and they can yeah. place it wherever they want to. But it'll yeah. be, this novel will be a Stan Robinson novel. I have, I have no doubt that he's no, not going to. I think that's exactly right. Yeah, he's not going to turn into Al Reynolds overnight. No. Uh, and, and you wouldn't want him to. Um, the one thing I always wonder about, or one of the things I always wonder about with, in those sort of circumstances as well is, you know, is that sort of external stuff something we should take into account anyway? I mean, I was having a discussion with someone today about not arguing with a book because a book came my way, and for various reasons, I, I disagree with its existence, right? I think it's a wrong book. But that's not a review of the book. That's not looking at it on its own merits. It's just simply saying, I have different opinions and views that this thing should be different to the way it's been done. And this, is, this is a novel or a collection? Of it's a collection of stories, yeah. Okay. And I, I just think that the publisher and the author have made a wrong decision and they should have approached it differently. But you see, I would never put that in a review. I don't think it belongs in a review. Uh, I think a review is about coming to terms, well, identifying what's, what they're attempting to do with the text they've created and then coming to terms with that and trying to assess whether it succeeds or fails on its own grounds. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, it, whether it does what it uh, yeah. uh, yeah. sensibly sets out to do. Yes. You know, you're, you're not going to attempt to, uh, you know, to argue that Antarctica should have been a better space opera kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And, and similarly, you know, I, I used to sort of mildly take to task one of our, you know, one of our review staff because there was, there was a tendency to want to sort of either read too much into you know stuff that authors were saying or doing or to want to interpret it so that you would get this sort of thing that you know sort of well obviously you know Kim Stanley Robinson is doing this for this reason and yeah as you were saying you know is it because maybe the science of the capital series didn't set the world on a fire commercially so we throw ourselves back to something we think that is going to be more successful and you sit there and go well you know even if that were true I'm not sure it's relevant. I'm not sure it's the sort of thing you should bring to a review or to a reviewer's perspective. Uh, I'd also say that I think that if Stan Robinson was going to become cynical about what he wrote, which I don't think he would be, but if he were, we'd be getting a fourth Mars novel, not a you know, space opera. Yeah. 
Absolutely, yeah. I mean, he would he would, he would be retrading territory, and he's he's not going to do that. No, no. Uh, and, and it's not it's it's pointless to uh, to argue about a writer's decisions. There are all kinds of uh, mm. uh, writers who are who are under enormous pressure to return to their greatest successes. And mm. uh, I admire this. Uh, I, I admire this in any artist who. Who, who takes a risk of, of losing a, a section of the audience? We yeah, talked about yeah. Like Peter Straub and his and people who want gruesome horror again. You know, uh, Miles Davis ruined his career four or five times. Bob Dylan ruined his mm. career four or five times. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so it's uh, and, and and that in the long run has made them what they are. Yes, I think that's absolutely true. I think you, you know, they have to keep stretching. They have to keep kind of, in a sense, burning down what was behind. You know that you know they've already done and moving on to the next thing. Otherwise, you know. Uh, they they die creatively, and I mean the, the thing that makes a, any artist interesting to keep following is that they remain curious and adventurous and are pushing the boundaries of what they do rather than revisiting it again and again. So and you can usually tell an author uh, there there are some authors who will who will who can or or occasionally can at least just just write something. I'll write something to make money, and then I'll go back and write my stuff. And, and Absolutely, Greg Be- Greg Bear is a great example. Greg Bear is a very good example. He has written some absolutely, you know, work for hire stuff. I mean, he's got, I think, two novels coming out this November, right? Mm-hmm. Now, one of them is this new book that's coming from Orbit, I think, which is on its way to you right now. We just got the galley for it. Yeah, that sounds exciting. This is his big new sci- you know, hard science adventure you know, kind of thing, which, which I forget the title of. It's Hull Zero Three or something like that it's called. Mm-hmm. And that looks really interesting. The same month, he's got a new Halo novel out. Uh-huh. And, uh, yeah. If he, could, if he can do that, more power to him. I mean, yeah. uh, I, I know Liz Hand doesn't do it anymore, but, you know, she was doing novelization. She was, well, not only novel, she was doing Boba Fett novels. Yeah. Uh, going back decades before that, Joe Haldeman wrote a Star Trek novel. You bet. Uh, so, uh, you know, and, and, and if this is, if this is um, what it takes in order for us to get the next Hemingway hoax, and Fine. So, absolutely. Yeah. Start and also, I think it, it has to undercut some of the distrust that we hold commercial writing in. You know, I remember I used to have these discussions, and we keep coming back, or at least at the moment, again and again to Charles. But but he was a very central figure in the discussions we had in these things. We would argue about. Yeah, you know, he would say, you know, once you've sold out and you've written one of these books, it destroys you as a writer. You learn terrible things that you should not, you know, sort of be doing. And you know, I turn around and say, well, you know, what's that book in your hand? It's all Slant by Greg Bear. It's a great book. I really love it. And you're going, mm-hmm. so you love Slant, but you know, he wrote a couple of Star Trek novels before that. Yeah. And, and, and Charles, by and large, was, was, was wrong. I mean, one of, the things, one of the things that we both loved about talking to Charles is that he was wrong. And sometimes, rarely, he would come around to that. But you, you always had a great discussion getting there. And, and by oh, the yeah. way, sometimes, sometimes I was wrong, too. Um, but, oh, but like that it. dynamic. But yeah. one of the things that uh, fascinated me, we got into a conversation um, with Brian Evanson. Now, Brian Evanson, if there's anybody who's got a mainstream rap and he's, uh, I mean, he's choosing to, he's choosing to do all kinds of things that seem to be career suicide. Now, the guy yeah. is, he directs the writing program at Brown University, so he's got a good, good day job. Yeah. Um, and uh, and he decided to write a uh, aliens novel. Uh huh. He doesn't need to write an Aliens novel. He, he, he slightly disguised his name under B.K. Evanson. But, but he got interested in the franchise. He got interested in that kind of writing. He got interested in that kind of 
plotting. And his, his argument was, you can learn things from doing that. Yes. Uh, you know, the, 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 any kind of writing is is is, is grist for sort of. Uh, for, it, it, it's a, at the very least, it's kind of calisthenics. You're learning yeah. how to do things that you didn't do before. Yeah. Well, well, tra- Charles's not necessarily sustainable response would have been that the problem is that, in his opinion, all the things you would learn were bad. Because <laughs> they're plotting well, shortcuts and all this kind of stuff, which maybe you shouldn't be doing. And you can't, yeah, I, I, I was yeah, never convinced. I always thought that was just basically prejudice. But it wasn't. It wasn't entirely prejudice on Charles's fault. I know why he thought that. Yeah. Why he thought that was because years ago, I mean decades ago, when he tried to write fiction, he was always copying whatever he wrote. Yeah. Uh, it had been reading Heinlein, so he so he had this sense that writers can be contaminated by what they read because he felt that he'd been. I mean, apparently Charles actually had written a couple of stories. Mm-hmm. I think one or two was even published. Yeah. But he he had the sense that no, you can't you, you can't be soiled by this kind of thing because it will infect your own writing. I think that simply happened to his writing, uh, but uh, by and large. I was talking to Mary Brickard about, uh, I don't know uh, how much I should talk about this, but she's thinking about, I, mean, I, can, I can say this much, she's thinking about formally studying writing in a, in a degree program. Okay. And one of the concerns that I have when I have a writer that I enormously admire and they're going to go into an MFA program is, are they going to survive that? Yeah. They're going to survive being hammered into a certain kind of this is because what I regard as the MFA genre, because there is an MFA genre, there's practically yes. an MFA fiction industry, and and her response was, I think I know my writing well enough now yeah. to get through that, and maybe I'll learn something. Yeah, and I think that's true of almost any writer. It's true of Stan. It's true of Joe Haldeman. It's true of Greg Bear. It's true, true of Liz Hand. I don't. I've never. I've never met a writer corrupted by a book. <laughs> well, Jimmy. Walker, I think the mayor of New York said that or something. <laughs> well, yes. I will say this all sort of circles around one of, one of my most disappointing failures in, in the field. Uh, for a while there, I had the ear of somebody who had the ear of somebody who was doing, involved with a Star Wars program. Mm-hmm. And I tried earnestly for a long time to get them to invite Gene Wolfe to write a Star Wars novel. Because I thought a Gene Wolfe Star Wars novel would have been a fascinating thing and would also have ultimately ended the argument with Charles and and would have underlined something which I think people who read Wolfe regularly understand, but those who don't, don't understand, and that is that he's profoundly a pulp writer. Well, he, know, he, yeah, he absolutely knows that. Yeah. Uh, and, he, and he loves trying out different clothes on for size. Yeah. Uh, so I, I, I think... And, and, and this worked out. I, I'm, I'm guessing he he might take a shot at it. He might take a shot at it whether anybody asks him or not because he can change everything around. Yeah. But he he, he loves he loves costumes. I mean, yeah. you think of a novel like Pandora by Holly Hollander. Sure. Uh, or, or you think of his Lovecraft novel. Uh, he, he he enjoys things like that. And one of the things he enjoys about it is that he can always disguise a real Gene Wolfe novel about four or five inches beneath the surface, mm-hmm. which will be invisible to <laughs> nine out of ten Star, Star Trek readers or Star Wars yes. readers. Yeah, yeah. No, I think it would be interesting. I think it would be fascinating to do. And uh, I was talking to somebody else about that years ago. I think maybe it was Sean Stewart or... Uh, or I think it was Sean Stewart because mm-hmm. he's involved in gaming and he's kind of kind of connected with the industry. And he did write a Star Wars novel in the end. And he did write a Star Wars novel. We were, yeah, we were talking one time about why don't we get Gene to do that because it, 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 somewhere in there there'd be a complete Gene Wolfe novel. And uh, we just wanted to see how he'd do it. It's mm-hmm. one of those writers where you want to get them to do things to see how they'd do it. It's like, you know, let's see. Yeah. If, uh, uh, you know, what will, I don't know, what would, well, it's a good example. What would what would Springsteen do with old Woody Guthrie songs? You want to find out what he'll do, and then he finally does it. Yes. 
and, and then you end up with uh, a Sean Stewart Yoda novel, mm-hmm. which is a curiosity. Just trying to sort of think what else has been happening around around the, you know the place in the field this last week since we spoke last. There was the nebulas last week. Did, did mm-hmm. you did you sit up and watch the podcast, watch the, the webcast or anything? I didn't. I was actually at a at a, at a granddaughter's soccer game when that was happening. Ah, uh, I, 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 yeah. I actually listened to some of it later. It was uh, recorded somewhere. Yeah, I sat and watched it uh, over the web, sort of on a eight o'clock on a Sunday morning over breakfast with sort of the family kind of champing at the bit to go out and do things in the background. And I thought it was an interesting batch of kind of winners, but most importantly, I thought it was a phase change. Well, more inklings of a phase change in the field when you looked at what won and what didn't. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I hope so. Well, well I, I hope so because I don't think the Nebula Awards have been very relevant the last few no. years or so. No, this is their most relevant batch of awards in a long time. But the fact that, you know, every winner came from a small press or independent publisher, I think that was interesting. Uh, the fact that a bunch of it was published online. The fact that the first ever self-published book, I think, won a major award. Right. Which is astonishing in a way. So that, mm. that, that is a chance. No, it was... A self-published book by an established writer. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, who has a following and who, uh, who 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 edits herself pretty well. I suspect I haven't read that one, but I'm I'm, I'm gathering that by the time it gets to uh, who is it, Lil Brown that's publishing the book form? Um, uh, something like that. Or Fivel. Fivel. Yeah. Okay. Uh, but it, it probably is not going to need a lot of editing. I, no. I, I think the good news is that uh, that's possible. Uh, the question, the the the, the, the uh, equivocal news is that. That doesn't mean, if Captain Valenti does something like this, it doesn't mean that uh, everybody who publishes a novel online is going to get nominated for a Nebula Award. No, no. Uh, nor that every, everybody who's about to write a novel should suddenly whack it up online mm-hmm. in the hope that sort of, you know, it'll work. It's, it's also that other thing which I've been interested in this last year or two. Um, that particular book, The Girl Who Circum- Circumnavigated Fairyland in a Ship of Her Own Making, was one of these sort of crowd-funded books. You know, we mm-hmm. put it up online, people sort of donate money if they like what they read, which is a perfectly valid thing to do. It's basically busking for writers. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it kind of break, begins to break down the publishing models that we're used to following and makes it harder for places like us, to not, you know, like, like Locus Reviewers or whatever else, to, to get involved with that cycle and, and know when they should engage with it and what to promote and all that kind of stuff. It's well, there's an odd thing uh, about that in terms of not only the publishing model, which is is, is undoubtedly shifting, but but the reviewing model, because mm. uh, by and large, uh, reviewers aren't used to paying for things. Now, I, I suppose if, if somebody, if, if somebody, I mean, and I'm not saying that cynically, because by and large, I've, 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 I've years ago, decades ago, got over the excitement of getting free books, yeah, yeah. Uh, because now my you know my major concern is is getting rid of free books. Of course. Uh, but, uh, but 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 if something like this, uh, and, and if I'm sure that if 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 we'd been sort of paying close attention and, and Kat, can you send us a review copy of this before it's done, she would have sent it to us. I'm sure you're right. Uh, but 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 by and large, how do we know what's out there? I didn't know it was there. I didn't know it was happening. Well, okay, actually, I should say, and this is this is talking a little out of school. On Lo- at Locus's level, Liza and I had had conversations about this this particular one, and we mm-hmm. made a decision. You know, because I sort of said, you know, we sort of had a conversation that effectively covered the fact that we knew the book existed online, that it was coming out, that we hadn't got to the stage of a full text yet, to our knowledge, because she was writing it a week at a time, putting it up a week at a time. Uh, But also we knew that she then sold it, and we sort of decided, well, maybe from Locus's perspective, we're better off waiting to review the published book, Mm -hmm. and that, that, that would work better from a promotional point of view for her. 
Uh, whether that will prove to have been the case, I don't know. But that, that was certainly the thinking in that case, that we would serve the book and her better by covering it in its, in its print release than by I covering think it online. Because one, one of the dangers that always occurs, and I know Cory Doctorow has argued and provided convincing evidence that putting a book online only enhances its sales. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but it only enhances its sales partly because people are still conditioned to want the book. And then you have a generation or two that are – uh, used to reading everything they read online, I don't know that that's going to hold up. I don't know if people yeah. are always going to go out and buy the book. Huh. Uh, and, uh, I mean, one of the uh, other issues about Locus not covering that, I was listening to your um, uh, discussion with Cheryl on Starship. Oh, yeah. And, uh, and then Locus came up, and I, part yeah. of this is, is Charles's view, which is not uniquely Charles's view because it's held by PW and a lot of other places, that you know, we're not going to list a book until we see a physical copy of it. Yes. Um, because he's been burned in every and, and Locus is significant as a listing agency as well. And uh, and and I know Charles had been burned before I ever came on board by listing phantom books. Yes. And there are there are published bibliographies, there are databases, there are lots of phantom books floating out there. So so he wanted to say, okay, until until we see it, we don't know it's real. Uh, and there are some books that are real that Locus just missed getting a copy of yep. and, and didn't get listed. But now you have the problem that there are books like this one as of now, which are completely real, yep. and you can't hold, you can't hold it in your hand. Uh, yes, yes, but nonetheless, are phantoms in a sense. Yeah. So yeah, it's a strange and interesting time. I guess the other thing that I've been battling along with, and it's, I, I am currently arguing with a book that hasn't even been published, ah. <laughs> <laughs> and a book which I don't hope to um, influence at all. And this is the Joan Gordon, Victor Veronica Hollinger, Rob Latham, Arthur Evans book, the Wesleyan Anthology of Science Fiction. The Science Fiction Studies Anthology of Science Fiction, to be honest. Oh, okay, because because the, the cover calls it the Wesleyan Anthology. To, to no, no, it, I know, but it, it, it is it is a, a a group of people who are editors at Science Fiction Studies, mm -hmm. uh, working with uh, Art Evans, who's been you know, working at Wesleyan, and I I haven't I've. I could look at the table of contents. I saw it and didn't see it. Yeah. I think there's a problem with. The, well, go ahead and tell me what your argument is. Well, okay. My my, well, my 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 argument actually is very lame, and I, I completely admit this. This I admit that. And the first is that I kind of think like it's an unnecessary book. I mean, I, I'd have to read all of the additional material that that they've put into the book to, to really know that. But uh -huh. the the existing Robert Silverberg book, the Science Fiction Hall of Fame, frankly covers. Yeah, up to 1967, better than this book does. It has a better range of stories. And and this is something we were touching briefly on before we started recording. Uh, a lot of the stories that represent the sort of 1967 onwards period are, how would I put it? They lack the gravitas. I mean, all I see are the stories. I mean, there are a couple of stories there that absolutely belong there. I mean, I'm looking at the contents now, and you know, if, if, I'm not going to argue with Burning Chrome by Bill Gibson. You know, mm -hmm. or even Forever Yours, Anna by Kate Wilhelm. But if you're doing a general history of science fiction, you know, I might have picked the same authors. I mean, I would have picked Jane Wolfe. I would have picked Nancy Cress, Pat Cadigan, Greg Egan, whoever else, Charlie Strauss, Ted Chang. But I wouldn't have picked the stories they chose. You know, I wouldn't have picked We See Things Differently by Bruce, which I don't think is a particularly typical Bruce story in some ways, nor one that tells the most interesting thing about his involvement in the science fiction field. I don't, no. I don't think Closer by Greg Egan uh, really is the best, the most in indicative, the most impactful, or the most interesting of Egan's stories, and he has a lot of interesting stories. Yeah. You know, I don't think Everywhere by Jeff Ryman is that. I, I don't think Rogue Fire by Charlie Strauss is that. I mean, if you're going to 
represent Charlie Strauss in some ways, surely you're going to take a short fiction, a piece of Accelerando or something, which is where he was really sort of, uh, you know, sort of cutting the edge for a while there. I wouldn't take Exhalation by Ted Chiang, a story I really like, but I wouldn't put it to, to build it in a historical book of the evolution of science fiction. So okay, let me uh, let me depend what they're doing without even looking at the table of contents. <laughs> okay. There, there, there are a couple of things that Google with an anthology, which is intended for the classroom, and uh, a university press is probably the right place to do this because uh, I remember talking to Tom Doherty years ago. I was supposed to be doing the the, the science fiction research association anthology, which ended up being done by Bernard Hartwell and Noel Moore because I was having all kinds of problems. And and Tom thought, this is great. We're going to have – there are thousands of science fiction classes out there. We're going to sell tens of thousands of copies. And I said, look, it's – first of all, it's a small market. It's mm. a small, insignificant market. There may be a thousand colleges and, and uh, community colleges around the world that teach a science fiction course. But they teach it maybe once a year, and it maybe gets 30 students in it. Mm. Or maybe they teach it once every two or three years. So yeah. the market, uh, in terms of annual sales, is not large. Yeah. Uh, it, it, it's not going to sell 20,000 copies. No, no. Uh, the second question is the book is being marketed to people who have to worry about teaching stories. And there is a sense, and I, 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 having taught a science fiction class just last spring, I, I, I faced this problem myself. Uh, you could try to represent the, story, the field historically, but by and large, your students are not going to, they're not students of science fiction. They're not, yeah. they're not interested in the history of the field. You're trying to find stories which are teachable. Yeah. Uh, I, interestingly enough, ended up teaching exhalation to a group of high of, of, of advanced placement high school teachers yeah. uh, from the Chicago suburbs. They loved it. They thought there's all kinds of stuff we can do in this story. They want stories that can get something out of their students, and that's a, that's a completely different thing from from representing uh, the history of the field in any kind of sort of uh, dynamic way. Uh, and um, well, I, I guess I should say that they, they offer on the table the contents that I'm looking at. They do arrange all the stories thematically, so I wonder if that's how they intend to, to um, teach them. I think that's probably, they're probably suggesting a way to teach. The third problem with any anthology like this, knowing a lot of people who science fiction, having looked at the, the uh, University of Kansas Center for the Study of Science Fiction, Jim Gunn's website, maintained a database of, of syllabi of science fiction courses. Anybody can mm -hmm. look at them. It's fascinating. And you find out what, of course, you would... Uh, Realize the minute you think about it that since 1970, let's say, probably since 1960, you're teaching a science fiction course by trying to get them to read novels. Yeah. And you've got essentially, in a university class, at least in the States, you've got maybe 15 weeks uh, to work with, maybe 12 weeks. Yeah. And you want them to read uh, what essentially represents the, the, the history of science fiction for the last 40 years, which is which is the novel. Yeah. Um, and before, I mean, the reason the Science Fiction Hall of Fame works so well, or Guns Road, the science fiction, and it works so well, is because you pretty much represent science fiction prior to 1970 with short fiction. Yeah, yeah. After 1970, I don't think you can do that. I, I don't know no. if I could conceive of an anthology that would effectively you know, represent what science fiction represents. And uh, let's say, just to, to pick a title, the post-Dune era. The, you know, the, the, the post Stranger in a Strange Land, when suddenly science fiction writers could conceive of large, meaty novels. Yeah. Um, the most successful novel I taught in that class, the one the students absolutely loved, and they, keep in mind, these were a lot of students who did not know much about science fiction and some who were complete geeks, was um, Robert Charles Wilson's Spin. Mm -hmm. Because students who didn't know anything about science fiction could read it, could read the family novel, which is it's, it's a good example of what we were talking about earlier. It's a good mainstream novel. 
character relationships work out. The ideas are, uh, you know, characteristic Wilson sort of miling ideas that maybe don't really make any sense in the end, but they were so when you were reading it, you don't mind. Yeah. Okay. Um, so, so I, I, in, in other words, I don't uh, – uh, the specific problem involved with an anthology of teaching science fiction. There's another one which I saw – I have a copy of here some, somebody named Heather Mosry, who I don't even know. And it's something like 900 pages long. I think it's a huge wow. anthology. Gosh. And I thought – yeah, and, and it's, 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 it's not bad. You know, if you're teaching that book – and if you're teaching any significant portion of that book, you're not getting your students to read any novels at all during that semester. And if they're reading any novels, they don't know what science fiction is. Yeah. Not these days. Uh, I, I think it must have been easier back in the days when there were no science fiction classes. Yeah. To have taught a science fiction class because then you could basically, yeah, you could basically take Adventures in Space and Time and um, a few other things and. Um, there's, there's, I'm, I'm going back and looking at things. There's a thing called Decades of Science Fiction, which is a mm-hmm. few years ago. It's um, over a thousand pages long, I think. And I don't think these things ever did very much because mm. if, if, the teacher, if the teacher doesn't know much about science fiction, they'll assign a book like this. Or the the most extreme example of a sort of distorted, deliberately distorted science fiction was normal book of science fiction. Yeah, yeah. The, the one in Atterbury did which was confined to post-1960 North American science fiction. Mm-hmm. Well, that's interesting. It's a representation <laughs> of something, but it's not a representation of what those of us reading science fiction are reading. Yes. Well, particularly these days, a, a post-1967 book restricted to purely North American science fiction actually doesn't even amount to being a follow-on to the, the Silverbird book. Because, Not really, I mean, no. because even if you wanted to make the case, and we'd all be a little reluctant to do so, but if you wanted to make the case that uh, the gold age of science fiction was essentially a North American phenomenon and that most of the interesting science fiction written was written in North America between 1930 and 1967, mm-hmm. um, you certainly wouldn't make that same case from 1967 to the present. You know, the, the, the field has changed. It was broader than that anyway, particularly through the, the from the mid-50s onwards, but... Um, it, you know, it's no longer a case that you can make that, that science fiction is essentially a North American phenomenon if you could ever have made that case. I don't think you ever could have, and I think yeah. that... Uh, but you could have maybe... There, there was an interesting book years ago by Brian Stableford, which is a history of the science... Um, the uh, scientific romance in Britain. I think it was the title mm-hmm. of the scientific romance in England. And he made a very persuasive case that there was a completely... British tradition out of Wells and Stapleton and so forth that had been around and leading all the way up to John Wyndham that at some point converged with, with American science fiction that, that might have been the post-war era when mm-hmm. people like Arthur Clarke were reading all these pulp magazines and writing for them um, so, so at some point after the mid-50s it's, it's, it's kind of all one thing I mean yeah. uh, British writers realized they felt so astounding um, and um, American writers you know a, few, a decade later some of them found they could sell the new world yeah so, so at that point, it was all one thing. I think the major issue has to do with the question of um, something like the Science Fiction Hall of Fame, which I think is, if I'm not mistaken, they had a cutoff date of a few years before the actual anthology. I think mm-hmm. they all had been in stories or earlier. I can't remember the exact date. And I don't know if you could pick out 20 or 30 stories um, since 1970 that can represent the field anywhere no. nearly as well as those stories did. No, I agree. I mean, you, you, what you can do is what always looks like a bit of a cheat, and the obvious place I, I've seen it, 
and I don't blame him particularly, is in some of the big historical books that Hartwell has done, where you end up having to uh, write a, a meaningful introduction and then picking a hopefully sort of representative piece of short fiction so that you turn, turn around and say, well, we know that Greg Bear's primary contribution to the field was through his novels, but this gives you a feel for it. We know that Ian Banks... Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and one of the things that absolutely... I cannot stand in anthologies or novel excerpts. Yes. Yes, I, I don't I like reckon But if you're doing an anthology, let's say... Let's say you're doing the, um, the, the Sherbrooke anthology. Mm. Uh, you know, one of the classics, which I think is sadly forgotten. I mean, I'm, I'm, one of these days I'm going to start a Clifford Simic campaign. But SETI, I think, was... was I, I, I thought that was an astonishing book when I read it as a book. And I thought it was a novel. Yeah. It was years later I found out it was a collection of short stories. Yeah, yeah. And, and Huddling Place, uh, I think that's the one that shows up um, in, um, in in the Science Fiction Hall of Fame, yeah. gives you a very good flavor of what that whole collection is. Yes. So because many of the early classics are the, the, the Foundation series, iRobot, the Martian Chronicles, yeah. the, uh, the, um, the City, um, all these things were actually began. So you could represent the major works in the field by short, short by examples of the short fiction which had absolutely. gone to construct them. You absolutely could. I mean, the, the, the field up through up through the 50s was still primarily a, a short fiction and magazine-driven field. Mm-hmm. And now and it's are, not. And, and very few writers these days, uh, people need to test drive any of their uh, science fiction concepts in short fiction. No. Uh, it's interesting. But the most interesting recent example of that, now that I think about it, is probably, uh, it's not science fiction, but probably was, uh, was Neil Gaiman's The Witch's Headstone. Yeah. Which was clearly a sort of, uh, okay, he's floating sinful from the graveyard book out there. And the graveyard book is very much like a fiction. I mean, it is, it is. Largely like a collection of stories. And, and he can do that. But but I um, don't see Stephen Baxter putting out chunks of what is the new in Stone Spring as short stories. No. That, uh, even though I suspect that the Earth stuff he's doing through Asimov's is exactly that. Earth 2 and whatever else. There's a series of novellas. And I think yeah. that'll, that'll become a fixed-up novel fairly soon, I think. Mm. Well, those are the ones that are related to the uh, Ark and Flood series, aren't they? Mm. As I, I recall, so. uh, yeah, because the, the, there's a sense in which the at, at the end of uh, Ark, they're, they're on Earth 2, I think. And he's been mm-hmm. working out those War Earth 2 stories, which probably will result in uh, in a novel. You're right. Yeah. Whether it'll be a fixed-up novel or a novel which is uh, sort of more or less standalone, I don't know. Yeah, I, I got to say, actually, sorry, what was that? Continue. Uh, I, I was going to say you do see the reverse happening. You do see a number of writers taking chunks of novels or outtakes of novels and publishing them as stories. Yes, but, uh, that's perfectly legitimate, I suppose. Oh well, e- either way is legitimate. It's just interesting to see how they do. What I was going to say was that just this week I got a, a galley actually in the mail of Stone Spring. Aha! Uh-huh. I got one this week too. And you know what? I've got to say, despite the fact that I that I said to you privately, and I'll, I'll you know that, that I wasn't particularly enamoured of uh, his prehistoric fiction. I mean, I read the I, I read the Mammoth trilogy, which doesn't you know, I, I didn't enjoy a great deal. In, you know, at the time. I read one of them and yeah. thought, okay, I've gotten the point. And there was another one of the more recent series with the same kind of thing. This actually looks kind of interesting. Uh, it has I, humans in it, doesn't it? It has actual humans. Well, it's only eight thousand years ago, I guess. Well, it was about 8,000 years ago. Welcome to science fiction, girls and boys. Um, but also, it, it's got this sort of real underpinning to it, this whole kind of Doggerland stuff, which is real. 
which I hadn't been aware of. So I found myself like this week, having got the galley, I was sort of googling around, finding about out about this sort of piece of tundra that used to spread between you know the you know the English coastline and the, you know the rest of Europe because because of course the sea levels were 120 meters you know lower lower than yeah right yeah yeah and so that was all very interesting and made me think maybe I would read this I mean normally I'd think hmm Mesolithic so it's kind of like Clan of the Cave Bear does science fiction and I kind of go e- yeah no maybe not but you know well, this is a very entertaining writer he's, he's an entertaining writer and he's 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 working in a genre which um, which is very real, and which has been around for a century and a half. One of the books uh, I reviewed this, I reviewed the manuscript for for Wesleyan University Press. It's a book coming up by Nick Ruddick called, um, well, what's it called? The Fire and the Stone. It's, a, it's mm-hmm. the study of prehistoric fiction, yep. uh, which is essentially a subset of science fiction, or maybe a subset of historical fiction, but nobody quite knows what it is. But there have been a lot of them. I mean, uh, mm-hmm. there certainly is. Uh, the, the Clan of the Cave Bear which, by the way, he defends more than I would. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's the best example of that. Well, I, I thought they were romance novels, you know. Uh, they certainly become so, you know, you know, more and more as they go on. I mean, I read the first yeah. five, four of them or something, and well, I, I got lost in book two or three, where basically the entire plot seemed to be ride a horse, procreate, invent something, ride a horse, procreate, invent something. Mm-hmm. And you're going, this is getting just a little bit tiresome, so... But, um, it's another interesting area, though, of, of, of uh, and, and John Owl, who Charles knew and had talked to, I think maybe interviewed at one point, mm-hmm. seemed to know all the way around science fiction, and she seemed to have read things like Jack London's Before yep. Adam and some of the classics. So she was writing in a tradition which was a real tradition, which has oh, yeah. never really been identified before, and oh. just doing the same thing. Um, but, um, Og, Son of Fire, back in... Yeah. There's a little tiny part of it that goes, there's probably an anthology there, but I don't know that I want to be involved in it. <laughs> uh, there probably is. I, I, I keep coming up with anthology ideas for you. Or, Thank you very uh, much. Uh, and, uh, or if it's not you, then Kelly and Castle will come to do the kind of weird anthologies that, that make an argument. But um, one of the stories which uh, you had in your year's best, as a matter of fact, which is the Michael Swan with Eileen Gutta, yeah. Story, Babylon City. Yeah, I love that. Um, yep. A lot of fun. It was huge amounts yep. of fun. And I remember, uh, I was talking to Eileen about this. Uh, after, after, after I've written a review, which, just by way of disclaimer, I, it's not, you know, I, I don't give people all these good reviews because they're good friends. But it was just a huge amount of fun. And yep. I thought one of the things that was going on in that yep. was it's partly a, a pulp story, partly a kid's adventure story, partly a, a 1920s kind of uh, scientific romance, probably a postmodern fantasy. It's all kinds. Of, it's just completely chaotic in some ways. It's like, yeah. we're going to do anything we want in this story, and yeah. you're going to have fun while we do it. And Swanwick has done this all along. I mean, Swanwick mm. probably started this. Um, it's not genre blurring. It's, it, it's, it's not the kind of interstitial thing that, um, that, that has been going on in a lot of anthologies and magazines and that sort of thing. Yeah. It is complete throwing all the genres up in the air and the mainstream up in the air and historical stuff up in the air and, and taking anything you want out of it at any moment. It's complete chaos. Cacophony yeah. is what I called it. And so I remember the line I used in the review uh, talking about uh, um, um, Swanwick in particular was that he was the ringmaster of the new cacophony. Yeah. And 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 said he loved that line. He's going to put it on his business card. And I said, why don't we do an anthology? I think there's an anthology called the New Cacophony, which is a collection of completely incoherent stories that take anything they want from anywhere in literature. 
I'm on board. I'll do that. I'll do the new okay. cacophony. Absolutely. As long as I don't have to you know, read the old cacophony to, to, to do the new cacophony, I'm absolutely No, on. no. The new cacophony is, uh, is – is, <laughs> we, we, we could probably find a date – uh, a, a month and a, and, and a week and a day when it actually started. Now, you see, that sounds much more fun than the silly anthology idea I came up with yesterday because there was a thing going back and forth on Twitter, which I don't know if you saw, where people were coming up with silly reductions of, of classic novel titles. So, I you know, saw that. I, know. I couldn't whole, figure out where it started. I was puzzled. I don't know where it came from, this whole lesser novels thing. So suddenly, you, you know, rather than great expectations, it was kind of like, you know, reasonable expectations, that kind of thing. And I was, I was joking around, and I said, instead of The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, which is the Stig Larson book, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I was saying, well, what about The Girl with the Hello Kitty Tattoo? Yeah, exactly. Okay. That's, and this led to an anthology idea? Yeah. Hello Kitty stories? Uh, no, not Hello Kitty stories. Uh, science fictional stories of intrigue and adventure for girls as a YA book. The Girl with the Hello Kitty Tattoo. Well, it's a great idea. I don't think that twelve-year-old girls are going to necessarily get a Steve Larson reference. But, hey, uh, hey, well, I mean, I, I actually think sort of no, they wouldn't get a Steve Larson reference at all. And I think that the core of the book idea is actually really good. And I think the title's fun. And you know, every now and again, yeah. No, I, 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 you're absolutely right. I think one of the things that uh, uh, is is missing is is any kind of girl science fiction. I mean, there, there's this bias that goes back at least fifty years in the public industry that only boys read science fiction, and yet you and I both know any number of women who came, some of whom became writers, some of whom who didn't, who have had the same experience uh, that Octavia Butler used to have about being a black writer, which is she's, she loves science fiction, but she kept saying, what, when did they kill off all, all of us? Uh, <laughs> so also, yeah. there, there are lots of girls who just, uh, and, 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 and yeah, some of them are old enough to have gone through Joanna Ross and have, and have read <laughs> the Gwen. But that's that's serious adult uh, feminist science fiction. Yes. And I think there are girls who would like to have the kind of thing which some of them maybe got from Andrea North and maybe yeah. some of them get to say from McCaffrey. Yeah. Uh, but it, uh, in the short form. Uh, yes. Well, it's like, it, it, yeah. it wouldn't have to be adventure stories either because I'm, I'm thinking nobody is doing Zena Henderson kind of stories. No, no nobody is actually. Well, that's true. But I was going to say, it's not even that necessarily has to be a book for girls, it has to just at least be a book with girls. And, and mm-hmm. I have to completely say, sort of in terms of being upfront, the reason that I keep slanting it this way right now is because I have an eight and a half year old who's reading Harry Potter, right, you know, and, and she's looking for, you know, the next thing. I mean, she's reading these, uh, you know, girls' spy books and all this kind of thing. And they're running around throwing their bits of tech around, and it's all near future, almost sort of, you know, sort of. So almost science fictional adventure stories. And I'm thinking, give her, give her a, you know, a great adventure story with a with a, a female character in it. She's going to love it. And that's really right now. I mean, the only sort of rule of thumb I want to apply to it. I mean, I'm doing uh, this book that you know about, Under My Hat, the Witch's Book. I'm doing that for my older daughter, who's what, ten in a couple of weeks, and she just simply loves witches and always has. For some reason, she's got a fascination with them. So I'm doing a book of witches stories. And I would be, ha- I would love to do a book of uh, girls' adventures with spy stories kind of thing for my younger daughter. Um, I think it would, uh, and when I think about it, I think, you know, and I'm sure that there are lots and lots of other eight and a half, soon to be ten year old girls who would love to read those stories too. Well, one of the things that I, uh, my granddaughter is eleven, as a matter of fact, mm-hmm. and she's 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 I, 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 she probably doesn't know what a short story is. I don't know oh. if she's ever seen. 
so that's that, that's a puzzle. And, and, and she's, uh, well, the last thing she went through that I'm aware of. No, she went through all the uh, series of unfortunate events novels. Oh, yeah. And she, she's on the last one of those now. And it's the last thing I would have expected her to fall in love with. Yeah. Because the last thing before that was Diary of the Wimpy Kid. And there's a sense that, and what happens is Diary of the Wimpy Kid is really for her younger brothers, but it was the only thing yeah. she had. Uh, the, uh, uh, one of the things at least that goes on uh, reasonably well in, um, in, in the Lemony Snicket novels is that the girls are, are significant characters. At least. Yes, that's it. I mean, I was going to say, I mean, we always say that kids take from stories what they want. I mean, when I look at what Sophie particularly, because she's the more advanced reader of the pair, what she reads for, uh, she, I think she reads for girls. She reads Harry Potter because she likes Hermione. That's the only one she, she only ever really talks about Hermione in the book. And if there was a Hermione only book, I think she'd be delighted, frankly. You know, she reads these EJ12 adventures, which is sort of this you know, 12 year old or 10 year old girl spy. And she reads what are basically the equivalent of young girl romance novels as well, and young girls starting school and, you know, I think she has no idea about the difference in the sense between a series novel, a standalone novel, a short story, a novella, or anything else. And I, I think there's absolutely no reason she should. She's just picking up stories that you know, relate to her, her experience as a girl. You know, she's an eight-and-a-half-year-old girl. She has issues in her, fa- her life that, you know, and that's yeah. what she responds to when she reads, just as we would today. But we always, because you're the adults looking, down, uh, looking at, it, at the, the phenomenon of a child reading, you're always trying to sort of like frame it far more than they they do, because for, for them, it's a completely organic experience. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that uh, when you talk to people, uh, when I talk to uh, people who were once girls and wanted to be science fiction readers, they, mm-hmm. before a certain era, they had very little to choose from, and, I'm, and I guess that they still have very little to choose from. I have here a copy of a book somewhere in my, my story log right now. Yeah. Which is from about the mid '50s, a bantam paperback when nurse books were very big. The nurses, oh, yeah. the nurse books were like the biggest. At, at one point, for a period in the '50s and '60s, they were the biggest selling market paperbacks for girls. Yeah. Um, uh, right up there with Dark Shadows novels, and it's called Countdown for Cindy, and it's a science yeah. fiction novel. And it's about <laughs> Cindy, who's, who's who gets a job as a nurse on the first spaceship to Mars or something like this. Uh-huh. And of course. The, the, being a 50s novel, there's no sense at all that she should ever do anything but, but, but be a nurse who falls in love with the doctor's all or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but there was a sense, somebody, I, actually a couple of people who wrote that when they were girls. Yep. And they thought, they were thrilled by it. They, they didn't realize the sex and the simplicity. And they were thinking, here's a, here's a, girl, a nurse book, and it's in outer space, and they love the science fiction home of it. Yeah, but yeah. It's, it's the only time they've ever seen anything like that. Exactly. And I, I, I suspect you'd be onto something there. Um, and the, 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 there's a difference between, um, probably a radical difference between science fiction for girls. Let me, let me forget about science fiction. There's a difference between fiction for girls and and feminist fiction. Yeah. Um, feminist fiction is for grown-ups, and yeah, yeah, yeah. science fiction has a, a very impressive tradition of feminist fiction. It doesn't have a very good tradition of fiction for girls. No, I, I, I guess it really doesn't. I mean, or at least, or at least, hang on. In fairness, it doesn't immediately occur to me what it would be. Well, I mean, it, 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 fantasy does to some extent. Yeah. I mean, fantasy, and, and the Gwen has contributed mightily to that with the Earthsea series and the Powers series and that sort of thing. But science fiction, it's uh, it's it, it's very difficult to think of things like that. I think. Yeah. I, I, th- I think that you know, if they weren't so shrewd, we were talking about Joanna Ross last week. She could have done this, and actually, yeah. the cat book is kind of like that. But again, it's a fantasy. Uh, but I could see some of the Alex stories if they weren't so shrewd and sophisticated and and, and 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 very adult in all kinds of ways. 
yeah. the, the plots of those stories could could be a kind of could be a model for verbal science. Yeah, yeah. <sighs> you know what? I think we should probably wind up. We've been going for an hour or so, and I know it's very late where you are. It's got to be like it is. two o'clock in the morning or something. One of the odd things about talking to you is that it's it's going to be bad time for one of the other. Oh, no, normally when I, I try and call sort of at about 9 o'clock in the morning my time on the weekend, which is yeah. fine, and that works out to be, I think, mid-evening for you, so it's not Something like these, it's yeah. not too bad, yeah. So, And, and normally we do it this way. This is a slightly different weekend here because uh, Marianne, my wife, is away on, on a respite weekend for the for, for both days, so you know, I'm sort of wrangling the girls both days, and I just happen to have a window now because you know, my younger Sophie's off at a sibling camp for... You know the siblings of kids with disabilities, and my eldest is off with her grandmother, which she adores. So I've got free time in the afternoon, which is unusual. So sibling anthology. Think about it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, you take care, my friend. All right, we'll talk Great to you talk soon. as always. Okay, bye. How are you?